Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast covering all franchises, one movie in one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, and I am joined by frequent contributor and panelist once again from the Bodies of Horror podcast, and all the way in Washington, D.C., we have... Oh, is it okay to say that? Yeah. Okay. Because you never know, there might be some like wackadoo that all of a sudden like does a door-to-door search, like knocks on literally every door. I wish them luck. Okay, there's a lot of houses. <laughs> but welcome back from the Bodies of Horror podcast, Nicole Goebel. Nicole, how are we? I am doing pretty well. Excellent. I am glad to hear that. We are recording this over the Labor Day weekend, so pretty quick turnaround time on this one. It's late in the evening on Sunday, and that means one thing. Nicole, what movie are we here to talk about tonight? We are here to talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Beginning? That sigh says it all right there. (laughs) That big... That is the sigh of regrets. That is the sigh of we've all made some choices in life and they've led us here. <laughs> Something so, like that, yeah. Before we get started on the movie proper, can you speak to the first time you watched this movie and what your initial thoughts on it are? Yeah, I saw this in theaters um, because I had really liked the remake and was just kind of interested to see how they were going to continue kind of this storyline with the family and yeah I remember feeling whelmed I thought I understood a couple of things that they were really trying for and I thought some of it was quite interesting um, but I wasn't as, I think, impressed with it as much as I had been with the 2003 remake. Mm-hmm. But so I don't, just, mm-hmm. but I, I will say that this is one that it hasn't gotten worse on rewatches. I'm not going to, it, it hasn't gotten better by any mm-hmm means but it hasn't gotten worse which is kind of surprising maybe could you give an example of a movie that as you like rewatch things maybe for other shows or just in general you're like oh i don't like that one as much as i thought i did i would say there's a couple entries in the nightmare on elm street franchise Mm -hmm. that i like but the more that I've, you know, popped them in here and there and gone back to them, they just haven't held up. 
um, particularly with me part four. Really? Um, yeah. Not real keen on Dream Master. Wow. Because that's the one that, in all honesty, raised the most, in my opinion, when I rewatched it for the oh, series. Oh, really? Yeah, that's the one that I'm like, oh, I forgot how fucking great this one is. Like, to the point where I, you know, depending on how much I've had to drink that day, might argue it's better than, like, the Dream Master. Wow. Which is, like, the fan favorite. I know. And I know for me, like, I would say a movie that the more I rewatch it, the more, the lesser it gets and the more it improves two other movies in the series rewatching David Gordon Green's 2018 Halloween the more I rewatch it the more I'm like man I really appreciate Halloween H2O that much more um and the even more so the way I appreciate like Rob Zombie's 2007 remake more because I'm like well at least this one is doing something different it's trying something new um and it's not even that I don't like David Gordon Green's movie. It's just that it's like it's one of those like whelmed might be. You know, I went from like loving it to like, you know, actually it's okay. It's good. I mean, it's not like a poor movie by any stretch, but I'm like, I think I like what these other ones or appreciate what these other ones are doing more. Um I don't remember the first time I watched this movie. I have this vague idea that the first time I watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the beginning is probably before, like, when I knew that I was going to do a show like this where we were going to cover all franchises, but before the show actually launched. I think that I decided, like, well, you know, the thing about doing every movie in a franchise is sometimes you get really classic ones like Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre and then sometimes you get like the eighth movie in a series um, which is why you know we'll probably never do the Hellraiser franchise because I don't think I could subject myself to like everything after the first couple movies and like want to talk about them for a long time I can, yeah, yeah, with the Hellraiser series, there's some real, some real great stuff, some real gems, but it, they are, whew, they are buried yeah. sometimes. Maybe I'll do the first Hellraiser with my 12-year-old for Halloween. We'll watch that one and dissect it together, and I can get, like, Worst Parent of the Year Award, <laughs> you know, for... <laughs> for that um and i can get someone will probably report me to dcf but i think i watched this on netflix like when i knew i was going to do this type of show but before the show actually launched and i know like there had been some chatter about it being like better than the remake um and i i think i even agreed with that for a very short period of time like oh yeah this is better than the because i just had it in my head that i did not really like the remake and then doing a rewatch of the series like a year ago i'm like no i was way off base on that like i actually think this might be the low point of the franchise for me um 
Because like one thing I really believe, like watching all of these movies in close succession is that even the ones that aren't good, like the next one we're going to do, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3D, it is not a good movie. Like it is not. Like I'm not going to argue it's a great, you know, an excellent movie. It's a fun movie. It's going to be a fun movie to talk about. Um, And I don't necessarily think this is a bad movie, but I just don't know how much there actually is. I think like whelmed is the great way to describe it. Like it's there, you know, it's a movie that I saw. Um, When I described the remake is like the viewing experience of the remake of like watching big sack of ground beef getting hit with a baseball bat repeatedly. That's actually this movie. Like that is the experience of like, cause this one is like very, very grisly and very, very dour. So yeah. All right. On those happy notes on that, like, you know, really selling this episode to y'all listeners right now where you're like, must be jacked and pumped to hear what we have to say. Let's dive into it a little bit. So why was this movie made? Well, Commerce, like the first movie, the 2003 Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, massive hit. Like Platinum Dunes, who I think in some ways is a precursor to Blumhouse in terms of their model, in that they take proper... well. The exception being Blumhouse's mostly original films. Platinum Dunes is like, we're going to take these known properties. We are going to give a little bit of money behind it, but we're mostly going to give a lot of artistic freedom to some young directors. And we think we can like actually turn a pretty healthy profit. I don't think they expected the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake to do as well as it did. It clears over $100 million on like less than 10 million bucks. So at that point, you're like, okay, we have a new franchise. And by this time, Platinum Dunes is in full swing. Like they're doing the Amityville Horror remake. They're gearing up for Friday the 13th in a couple years. They have like just tons of stuff on their plate. Um, And other companies, other production houses see what's going on and they're like, oh, we're going to jump on this gravy train with biscuit wheels too. And we're going to talk about just how many remakes come out in this like two year stretch. So not a lot on the making of, I'll just like talk a little bit about the director, uh, Jonathan Liebsman. He is uh, slated to direct this. He had made his like feature debut. in I think 2002 with darkness falls, uh, is that a movie you're familiar with Nicole? Yes, it actually is. Um, I remember the, tooth fairy kind of story um and yeah i think it's okay it's pretty forgettable um but what's interesting to me beyond the director is the writer sheldon turner who would go on to be oscar nominated for up in the air um, did not know that. Yeah, and he also wrote X-Men First Class. So he went on to do not a ton. Like, there's still, you know, usually when a writer gets, you know, kind of the Oscar buzz. I think he actually won the BAFTA for Up in the Air. Mm-hmm. Um, usually You're sure it wasn't for this? You're sure it wasn't? I had to double check because okay. the quality here is chef's kiss but 
um, yeah, I, I was kind of surprised that he hasn't done a ton more because usually, you know, that is the fuel for a writer. Once they have like those kind of accolades in their pocket, that's really getting them into some really great projects and mm -hmm. giving them kind of an in to meetings and stuff. But yeah. he really didn't do a ton, but yeah, up in the air and X-Men first class, which I, I like them both. So he's, we know that he is capable of writing. Well, he co-writes it with David Scow or David Shaw or David Scow. I, I always mispronounce that. Um, who has made his name in Splatterpunk. Uh, he's written like, a number of Splatterpunk novels. He also wrote like a number of treatments for uh, Freddy versus Jason. And he had worked in a number of like different horror franchises through the years. So a pretty well-known kind of like writer within the horror circle. So it's kind of interesting where um, you have someone who goes on to kind of like, I say bigger and better things or maybe more kind of artistically fulfilling things. And you kind of pair him with someone who, you know, has two feet very firmly planted in the, in the um, genre and, and Shao kind of returning to the, the franchise after writing Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, Leatherface, like 1990. So like a decade and a half later returning. Um, Liebsman is kind of interesting in that like when you describe Darkness Falls, you're like, yeah, it was okay. Uh, I think I watched like the second half of that movie on like the USA Network sometime. And it's, you know, like it's, regard it's a critically slighted but a decent hit for like a late period slasher. Like this is coming like at the really the tail end of that slasher rebirth from the late 90s to early 2000s. Um, what catches the attention of Platinum Dunes is a 17-minute short film he does uh, called Rings, which serves as a branch, branch between The Ring and The Ring 2. Uh, it kind of fills in the gap between what happened after the ring, but before the ring two starts. And it was really well regarded, not only by uh, critics that got a chance to see it or the or the uh, production house, but also fans that got a chance to watch it. So that puts him on the radar. He gets this movie. And then after that, he does like The Killing Room, Battle of Los Angeles, Wrath of the Titans, and the Teenage Ninja Mutant Turtle like reboot of 2014 before moving on to some TV work. And I have to say, like all of those movies are just like memory hold for me. Do you know what I mean? Like they're like, like it's like I think this is like the um, this is going to sound like a slight, but it's really not like it's he does the kind of movies that like you would turn on like the sci-fi network or the USA network at like two o'clock on a Saturday and like, Oh, this is on. And then you would watch, you know, like kick back on the couch and like kind of just watch it with some snacks, which is fine. Like it's totally, we need movies like that. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, the, the shout out to USA network because that's where our co-star star, kind of comes from um so but yeah i mean it's 
I, I agree completely. There's so many films when you really dig into like this time period. There's, oh, I mean, there's obviously some really standout stuff. Um, which I know that you put some really spectacular ones in, in the notes. But there's also like all of this stuff that I think is being put out because I think studios were like, well, you know, we kind of have to fill in the cracks here and there between what's, especially with horror, because this was really the remake, the slasher remake renaissance of the time. And so it's like, well, we also need some other stuff. So let's fill in gaps and bring these things in. I'm just looking at 05 and 06, and I'm going to read off the remakes that just the remakes that were done during this time we have for for reboots and remakes we have the fog we have dark water which is a uh import of a japanese film starring jennifer Connolly. we have house of wax we have the amityville horror starring ryan reynolds abs in 06 like you go absolutely hog wild we have the hills have eyes remake we have Pulse with um, Kristen Bell, like one of the few Kristen Bell projects that I'll probably never rewatch. Like it's a remake of a, a Japanese film. We have the black, first Black Christmas remake. We have a remake of The Omen, where the whole impetus behind making that movie is like, oh, it's 2006 and we can do a release of a movie and on a Friday which is when movies come out of 06, 06, 06, The Omen, how do we not remake this movie? Like, how do you not? Like, that literally was the impetus for making that movie. That in commerce. Um, we have we have When a Stranger Calls being made, and we have the greatest remake of them all. We have Oh God, the Bees, the Wicker Man remake starring Nicolas Cage in a bear suit punching women in the face. Um, hard to believe that that wasn't a, a hit right there. So um, that alone, and we'd even go into 07 where Halloween is remade. Like, it's crazy. Do any of these remakes, like, stand out as, like, you're like, you know what? Like, yes, these are worth it. Like, you know, we think of... The 80s when you had like The Blob, The Fly, um, The Thing, these great sci-fi horror remakes that all stood on their own. Here, you know, I would say like House of Wax is like crazy fun. Like that is a super fun movie. Glad that one exists. Uh, The Hills Have Eyes, like Alexandra Aja's remake of Wes Craven's A Hill Have Eyes, like in a lot of ways, like maybe even improves on Craven's movie. Like that's one that's pretty highly regarded. Is there anything else that stands out? I mean, I, as much as I hate to admit it, yes, I like the remake of The Wicker Man because I adore Neil LaBute. Um, so I, it's hard for me not to champion anything that he does. I know, very unpopular opinion, but I I think his stuff is really, really fascinating. And he hasn't done a lot of horror. Um, so I, I like it. I think 
It's, I mean, you have Nick Cage being Nick Cage in a very Nick Cage way, which is always fun. I would say the one on that list that I absolutely despise is When the Stranger Calls. That, and it's, it's hard for me to say that I really strongly dislike a film, but that film is so boring. Um, like, it really is, like, cinematic ambient, because I don't, like, the, I don't understand why anything is happening, nothing of interest is just kind of there, um, and so it's, to me, it's like an, an offensive kind of memory hold. It's like, I unfortunately remember you. Um, in bits and pieces, and it's not pleasant. Yeah, for me, that's The Fog, starring Tom Welling. Um, and I just had this vague recollection of like John Carpenter talking about it and being like, well, how do you allow these movies to get of yours to get remade? Like, why would you want someone to remake them and like cheapen your legacy? And I think he said something along the lines of, what I do is I stick out my hand and somebody puts a check in it. And depending on how many like zeros are at the end of that check, it will tell you if I'm going to have this movie remade or not. Like he doesn't care. He's like, dude, pay me and I can play video games and watch the Lakers and just kind of chill like whatever. And that's a great life right there. Like I love Carpenter's kind of take on, on remakes at that point in his work being remade. Um, and this is just like an assembly line of like remakes. Like it really felt like every month a new horror remake was down the pike and it's easy to kind of bash them. I mean, we're doing that right now. Like we are, we're, we're kind of shit posting right now as we talk about it. But the reality is if these movies weren't successful, if audiences like didn't turn out for them, then it would stop. Like as soon as remakes stopped being like super profitable, people moved on like, okay, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to revert back to original horror. Um, if there wasn't a hunger for these movies and, you know, I'm an older person, like I'm an old guy and I grew up watching a lot of these original movies and all this, is, what this really did is for a much younger crowd, like for the millennial audience, it exposed that audience to, a lot of movies that were like 20 or 30 years old that they may not have watched otherwise. Not a bad thing there. I agree. I think that that's something that when we get like, I like a lot of remakes. They don't upset me in any way, shape or form. Um, they exist and sometimes they're very good and interesting. Sometimes they are not. I move on um, with my day just fine either way um but i think that yeah when we have discussions about remakes or you know especially with i think texas chainsaw massacre being a rare one to kind of go on and have a little bit of a franchise itself mm -hmm. is that it is i think bringing along with it a new set of people who will now go back and you know look at the 70s uh, original and really get into kind of the original franchise. Um, so I don't have 
uh, you know, hard feelings on that. And I think it's, it's, you know, I, 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 even the ones I don't like, I think are fine. Yeah. You don't have to watch them. Right. Right. And I do miss the days of like, this is pre, you know, social media really taking a hold. It's pre iPhone. I miss the days when like, if you didn't like something, you could just like be like, eh, you know, I'm not really a fan of this and then move on with your day and then just go do something pleasant and productive as opposed to like basing your whole like online personality being talking about things you don't like. I miss those days. Um, but it's not all bad. Like there is a lot of solid horror that is coming out at this time period. Like there's a lot of great foreign horror. For example, 06 has like The Host, the South Korean great monster movie. You have uh, Them, which is a phenomenal um, home invasion movie, like absolutely terrifying French movie. Cold Prey, which is a great movie. I want to say from either Norway or Finland, uh, which is a terrific slasher movie. And it's an act like I've never seen Cold Prey 2. I know that like Brian Collins of Horror Movie a Day and other publications like really sings its praises um, where it's like kind of an update in Halloween 2 and that it takes place right after the first and takes place in a hospital. And it's one of those like I need to see this movie. Um, but it's also like a time of like really extreme, gory horror and we'll talk a little bit about the phrase torture porn in a little while but this is like oh five you see the devil's rejects the descent hostile wolf creek saw two and saw two is where the franchise makes that kind of hard turn to kind of embracing like the torture of it all but there's these solid original movies that like don't necessarily find a big audience right away um, but become kind of cult classic. So you have James Gunn's Slither, which is so good. I remember seeing that in theaters and thinking, like, this movie's going to be massive and being completely wrong. Uh, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, the first Hatchet movie, uh, Fido, which is a great little kind of like zomcom, zombie comedy or romantic zombie. I don't know. What would you call like a romantic zombie? horror comedy i don't know what the genre would be but there's some great shit coming out at this time yeah i i agree i think i i love slither so much it's so so good um and i was pretty big on gun because he like i saw his stuff that he had done with trauma and also lolly love this kind of mockumentary which i think is just brilliant um so yeah i think there's some really cool stuff and what's interesting is that you know i i think that it's these are also films that a lot of people if they missed during this time they've somehow found found like their way to still be part of a conversation when we're talking about horror of this time which i think is pretty cool I think, too, part of the reason you can have these little movies that don't necessarily do super well theatrically, but companies are more than willing to kind of take a, a risk on them is because it's the probably the height of like the physical media 
market, right? Where you're like, okay, if it doesn't make a ton of money in the theater, at least we'll make the money back on DVD. Because I know at this point, like if they're like every Tuesday when new releases would come out, like it would be like, all right, I'm going to the local Best Buy or the local Newbury Comics and I'm going to comb like the new release aisle and grab like as many cool looking DVDs as possible. And I know that I wasn't unique in that. So you have these movies like The Host, which maybe a ton of people don't see in theaters being like a foreign horror movie, but word gets out on it and all of a sudden like DVD sales start to do really well and it can you know Hatchet would be another really good example of that like Hatchet I don't know anyone that saw that movie Adam Green's Hatchet in theaters but it sure as shit did really well on on DVD to the point where then you have like three sequels to it right and I think another film I think it was this year um that came out if we're you know we're horror in theaters getting people in seats i think there was a final destination that came out this year so um you know they're they're yeah, okay so yeah uh the one with mary elizabeth winstead so yeah i think that you have some really interesting stuff happening um and even within, I think, the mainstream uh, kind of horror realm, I think there's some some cool stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And the only other production note I have, and it's a kind of a good-for-you note here, is that uh, New Line had to pony up an extra $3 million to retain the rights to this movie after the first one was so successful because producers uh, Toby Hooper, Kim Henkel, and Robert Kuhn played hardball. Like after the movie was such a huge success, Hooper and friends are like, you know what? If you know the rights are up for grabs again, uh, you're gonna have to pay us. And there was a bit of a bidding war, and eventually, New Line had to pony up an extra three million in order to make this. And I think that's great when you go back and go back and listen to our episode on the legacy of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and how screwed over like Hooper and Hankel and Kuhn and obviously like Gunnar Hansen and Marilyn Burns, like all of these folks were because like the accounting was wonky and they just like didn't see a fraction of the profits that that movie they should have. So for Hooper to go back and be like, fuck you, pay me is awesome. Like I really, you know, cause you know, Bob Shea can afford it. You know, he has that by this time he has that Lord of the Rings money. You know I mean? Like 3 million is like couch cushion money at that point. You know what I mean? I mean, that's exactly. You know. And Hey, you know, they say that it's just super important. <laughs> important Mm. to know your worth so yeah i think it's great that they kind of came in and and fought for for their dollars yeah so let's shift gears a little bit let's talk about um you know prequels in general first like what is it like when you hear the term prequel which has become more and more of a thing with like obi-wan on disney plus with um oh crap with Better Call Saul 
being a prequel to Breaking Bad. What what are your expectations of prequels in general? Well, I, I do think that some of that's going to be informed by what came before or mm-hmm. I guess after in the timeline. But I think that for me, it's really about establishing you, you want to really get into the world building. You really want to establish something that's locking you in to what you've seen before and what you're going to see, not even with just this film, but it's kind of saying there's going to be some more and you want to kind of knit it together. So I think that with this film in particular, I think that they had a real challenge in how far do you take a prequel back? What do you have that prequel be? Because you're also taking off any constraints, right? You can really have a prequel be a little bit of whatever you want it to be within certain parameters. So it's it's always a fun guessing game to be like, I wonder what elements they're going to really put their stamp on with this because that's going to be the thing that they want to bring in throughout whatever you know, number of films are going to be coming down with this franchise. Mm-hmm. It's, it's tough with a prequel because the risk reward for it is so high. Meaning like you typically like you're hamstrung because you know that you have to get to a certain point. Like you can't change things up so much like you can't have like i don't know at the end of the star wars prequels you can't have like luke and leah like jettisoned into the sun do you know what i mean like you can't do something crazy like that and then be like actually the the luke skywalker you know like he was actually a robot um you can't do stuff like that um and so you're hamstrung by like where the story is going to eventually go um and you want to do something new but it also has to be familiar to audiences at the same time right like if this if like if texas chainsaw the massacre started out and like leatherface was like a walking talking like milkman that like whistled a jaunty tune as he delivered milk every day you'd be like well that's a bit too jarring like that's a bridge too far i'm not going to go on that journey with you and you have to ask yourself okay are there any questions that my other movie sets up that aren't answered that my audience has a burning desire to know. And I've got a little quote here. Um, Andrew Form and Brad Fuller, like the co-founders of Platinum Dunes, talk about like not wanting to make a sequel to the O3 movie. Like they just wanted to move forward. But fans kept coming up and asking like, well, how did the family get this way? And how did Monty lose his legs? How did Sheriff Hoyt lose his front teeth? Like how did Leatherface get his nickname? And they meet with Michael Bay and they let, they say, okay, let's do a prequel to the movie. And to me, I don't know, like are any of those questions that you feel like you needed answered? Like I personally, I don't really care how Leatherface got his chainsaw. It's just like, that's the weapon he uses. That's really cool. I don't need any more backstory besides that. Was there anything that you saw 
in the remake where you're like, well, let's, I want this question answered. I would say the only one that is really worth getting into is Hoyt. Mm -hmm. Um, and how he became Hoyt and Sheriff Hoyt. I think that has some interest, um, because I think it's development, it's character development, it's something different. It's not something that we've necessarily seen play out in various ways in other films. So I think it's unique in that way. And it's also like Arlie Ermey was the standout in the remake. So more of him, I think, is a good thing. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I think one of the issues I have with prequels is that I... I don't know if I'm ever asking any questions about, Mm -hmm. you know, I want to know how this happened. Even prequels that I think are outstanding, I'm never leaving the, you know, the film that I've seen to set this up. I've never been like, oh, I wonder how this happened. Um, Mm -hmm. A film should be able to give me enough to at least just keep me wrapped up in that story. So, but yeah, Hoyt was the only one that, you know, I could see them really doing something with that character because it's at least set up in an interesting way. It is so hard to, to provide if you go about like, well, we're going to set up answers like, and the Star Wars prequels come to mind. Like, we're going to show you how Darth Vader became Darth Vader. And it's really hard to answer that. And I've come to, like, actually enjoy the prequels a lot more in the past few years. So I'm like, all right, I, I, I know some things I would do differently about them. It's really hard to provide any answers. It's going to satisfy the majority of the base. You know what I mean? Like, it's really hard to say, well, this is how such and such came to be known like like you said like how did Hoyt become Hoyt like it's hard to provide an answer that is going to satisfy a lot of people like it's a really hard trick to pull off I will talk about that and whether they succeeded here um the best example of a prequel I can think of right now is like I'm I've watched the first five seasons of Better Call Saul and I kind of watch them all within like a very short period of time and what I think that show does extremely well is it's a character study and it shows like, how does a person who is not super far off from what the person you come to know in breaking bad, uh, but you don't know a ton about him anyway. Like he's like a great supporting character, but there are so many blanks to fill in there that he's almost a blank slate. How does someone who's not super far off, but, isn't quite at that level yet. How does he make that descent? And it's like a really good tragic story. And also it helps you got Bob Odenkirk. So that's the best example I can think of like a prequel right now where I'm like, this is super fucking enjoyable. So I don't know. All right, let's, let's move on. Let's move forward here. And we're like 40 minutes in and we've barely talked about the movie. So, I mean, I think that kind of lets you, audiences know where we're at so i'll ask this like you know because you had just said like i want to know how hoyt became 
Hoyt. What do you think of Arlie Emery's character becoming Hoyt? What did you think of the solution they came up with here? Well, oh, he's actually not the sheriff. He's just a random farmer that murders the sheriff who's going to skip town anyway because there is no town anymore. Yeah, I think the way that they set it up is great. I really love the whole sequence of, you know, it's actual Hoyt uh, going and grabbing, I think his name is Charlie, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, He goes and grabs him because uh, Leatherface, Tommy, is, I'm just going to call him Tommy, um, is... Uh, you know, kind of out and about and, you know, has killed. So they're bringing him in and has brought, I guess, him as backup. And I really like the... It's a really great way to not just get us connected to the character, but also a little bit of the the area, the town. We're learning something. We're bringing in a quote-unquote outsider from the family, learning a little bit about them and their personality. We're understanding the dynamics of the family and others in the area. So I thought it was really kind of a cool way to spell it out. I think that you kind of understand where (laughs) where that story begins in the remake, but I think it they pay it off quite nicely in this film. Yeah, I thought the the whole like Hoyt becoming Hoyt sequence is one of the best ones in the movie. And it makes sense. It's one of the ones where you're like, oh, it makes sense that this guy isn't actually the sheriff. He's just super crazy. And he murders the sheriff. And nobody really knows about it because the town has gone away. Like there's really nobody that lives in this town anymore. The one business that was keeping the town afloat has dried up at this point. And Hoyt, the real Hoyt, makes the point of saying, I'm packing up and leaving for Michigan next week as it is anyway. So I really like that because it kind of lets, okay, that's how he was able to kind of slip under the radar where if he was the actual sheriff, you're like, this isn't going to fly. Like, this is kind of crazy isn't going to fly for all that long overall. So I really did appreciate that. And I thought it was like one of the few questions the movie tried to answer where I'm like, yep, that's pretty satisfying right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. Cause I think that's the other thing. Like it's a setup that you really have to finesse because yeah, it's it's a sheriff. A sheriff just can't go missing. You can't just pretend to be a sheriff because other people are going to know. But the way that they set up that story and they don't have to go, you know, we're not giving a, a ton of background. We're given just enough. So I think it's, yeah, I agree. I think it's a real standout of the film. And it helps explain, you know, why... You know, when he's clearly not following any sort of like proper procedures, for example, when it comes to the securing a dead body, you're like, how is this guy a cop again? How is this guy a law enforcement officer 
when he clearly doesn't seem to have any sort of idea of like protocol um that kind of makes her a pretty fun explanation for that as well uh and i think arlie ermy like he's definitely the standout here um you know i think they kind of captured lightning in a bottle with the first one and you see him kind of continue that here where he slips into that full metal jacket mode especially where he's making like dean do the push-ups and there's a real like as big and bad and menacing as Leatherface is, like he is the real menace of this movie. Yeah, because you you never know how far it will go in a moment. How like you never you never know if he's just gonna you know kill you right then and there, or if he's gonna draw it out. And so yeah, I like that unpredictability with him. Um, I think there are times to where I know, I can't remember where, I, I don't know if it was a behind the, the scenes thing that I had checked out, but I know that he, you know, improvised or ad-libbed a ton of his dialogue in this movie. And on one hand, I'm sure that's somewhat annoying for the other actors in the scene because it's like, hey, I need... I have lines that I need to deliver and I want to make sure that I'm actually able to deliver them. But I think that, again, that spontaneity that you never really know. Um, there's, there really is, I think, an intensity to the performance that, of course, it makes sense that you would have him really kind of be a focal point for this film. Yeah, and I think as long as you can stay within like the vibe of your character, if you can kind of still capture that same tone, but inhabit it in such a way where you're like, this is what my character would say here. A good director is going to let you kind of roll with that a bit and give you a little bit of rope, I think, to kind of to kind of go out on a limb and try some stuff. But at the same time, be able to pull you back in so you don't run roughshod over the whole production at that point. And like to your point, kind of make it impossible for your other characters or your other performers to really develop their own character or hit their own stride. So to that degree, what do we make of the rest of this cast right here? This is kind of like peak, super attractive people cast, right? It is. We've now, instead of the kind of WBCW, we're now we're going a little more adult. This is mm -hmm. USA. This is, um, you know, it, we're getting into kind of the um, more, I think, <laughs> young adult genre where it's a little bit older. So, yeah, um, I don't think Matt... Bomer had done a ton up to this point. I don't think he had actually started White Collar because I think that comes a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I I mean Matt Bomer's gorgeous and like not my type, but I can appreciate a Whoa. like a fucking statuesque beautiful face. 
I was kind of like reading some of the behind the scenes on this and you're not the only one that finds like Matt Bomer like super attractive. I was reading. Let me see if I can. You're not the only one that found like Matt Bomer like super attractive. Uh, Marietta Marich, who plays Luda May, had a bit of a crush on Matt Boomer, Matt Bomer. She says about him, like, what a gorgeous guy he is. He is the most fantastic guys. Oh, he's so beautiful. So really like that, like, old lady Marietta, just like, get it, lady. Go in and, and go out there and get it. And also, like, this is where, like, Jordana Brewster, like, she ends up marrying the producer, Andrew Form. So, you know, whole lot going on on this set. Um yeah, it is a little more adult. I mean, they're dealing with, like, it's supposed to just a bunch of kids going to buy some weed in Mexico. They're like, hey, uh, I'm going to, you know, dodge the draft. So they start kind of getting into some more adult themes with this one here. And in terms of the cast, like, the probably the one who's gone on to have the biggest career is Jordana Brewster, who... You know, I remember her from the faculty, um, but she's Mia in about a half dozen of the uh, Fast and Furious movies, which, fun fact, I've never seen a single Fast and Furious movie. I mean, hey, you are a rare breed. I'm a very rare breed. Um, I thought one of the strengths of the remake was, even though... The friends don't have like a ton of time on their own before <laughs> the shit hits the fan. Like it's like the 10 minute mark when things start to go south. I thought the film did enough where I at least felt like I understood the pecking order. I understood their friendships. I understood like how they would interact with one another. Um, so you could see why that group had come together. I am not sure I get like uh diora baird is bailey like they don't give her anything to do in this movie like the only thing they gave her to do is like lie on this dude when he's shirtless and lick his nipple and like that's fantastic like that's the extent of her performance in this movie like really they just don't seem to have a lot to do yeah she she's a, a she's a strange one in the film for me because when you get the shots of her kind of tied to the table when the tea lady is over and there's just something really just icky about it and i and i mean that in a in a really kind of good unsettled way um i think that she but that's it like that's her role um we don't we don't do anything with her character and I think what would have been and maybe a, a different film a better film would be you know instead of you know spending the beginning of the film where you're meeting the couples um, instead of focusing on the couples just focus on the brothers Build that mm. relationship. Let them really be the movie. And instead of there being, you know, a quote-unquote final girl, have there be a final boy. Have it be Dean. I think that would have been 
So interesting. Have a group of soldiers in like a bus that breaks down or in some way is like sidetracked. Have a group of like either first time soldiers or you have the brothers or a couple are returning. Do something like that. Do something like way and see how that, that they would fare against like this kind of crazy. Um, because ultimately, like there are moments when, you know, you, I'm going to ask before I even get into that, I'm going to ask like you had said, like, hey, when I watched this, I got what they were trying to go for. Like I kind of got the point they're trying to make. And this movie, like it touches on a couple interesting things. Like it talked like at one point. Dean looks at uh, or tells Eric, like, look, I hear you at night. I hear you with your nightmares and screaming and crying and thrashing about because of the things that you've seen and you've done, like in the jungles of Vietnam. Right. And it, it talks about that very, very briefly. But then like it never is like mentioned again, you know, and have like. Eric is a or Dean, uh, Eric is a character. It's someone who, at one point, like he's immobilized. He's made it so he's incapacitated and can't even breathe. Like there were so many interesting things that could have possibly been done with that, especially when you think of all of the trauma and horrors that so many soldiers in Vietnam were put through. Um, and it was like returning soldiers from Vietnam, like in the their reliving those traumas is what really led to a lot of the research and development on PTSD as an actual diagnosable mental illness. It was like what those soldiers that were studied, that is the basis for a lot of what we we how we treat PTSD today. You could have done stuff interesting with that. Instead, it's like a throwaway line, and then nothing is ever interesting is ever done with it again. How, when you say like, "Oh, I get what they were going for here," like, what do you see like big picture? What this movie is trying to do? Well, I think it's trying. At least my read is. I, I think you kind of laid a really interesting foundation. I think what it's taking is some of these ideas. Applying them to this age group during that time, during 2005, 2006, right after 9-11. And this being that generation's real grapple with, I'm going to go to war. I'm going to go over to the Middle East. I have issues with maybe while we're, why we're there, what we're doing there. And so I think... It's trying to take that and put it in in a context that, you know, someone watching it is going to be like, oh, I get that. I get that. Um, and I think that's interesting. And I agree. That's why I kind of wanted there to be a focus on the brothers, because I think you could have really just developed this in so many more interesting ways and made it be, I think, much more engaging I don't care about Chrissy. Um, she's kind of a non-entity in a lot of ways. And so, I, you know, I think it's making commentary, you know, as I think all Texas Chainsaw Massacres kind of have in their fabric about class and things of that nature. But, 
you know, it's also at that time we're starting to see a shift in, you know, the way that folks were viewing these small town conservative individuals as this kind of monstrous group. This is really where we're starting to kind of see these ideas, you know, or at least that's a conception. And so I think it's playing with a lot of that versioning stuff, but it's just not really handled with a lot of nuance and direction. Right. Pretty much from the start of this movie, the only real question about like Chrissy and uh, Bailey and Eric and Dean is like, what order will they get killed in? Like that is the only thing you're trying to figure out really with them. Like there's not a lot that's interesting. And then you introduce like characters like, is this like a sons of anarchy prequel? Like you have these like bikers just show up out of nowhere. Like you see them behind the convenience store and they just randomly decide like, Hey, uh, one of them is going to rob them and the other one's going to look like Jim Morrison. I mean, that's like, why are they there? Like, there's nothing interesting about them whatsoever. Exactly. It's just more, I think, fodder for the chainsaw. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't do anything. And I think that that's one of the things that the remake does really well is that it keeps it tight. Um, Mm -hmm. You're not introducing a bunch of extraneous characters. You're giving enough to what you're seeing on screen that is meaningful. To where here, I think it, you know, it wants to say something, but it's not saying it, you know, with any kind of heft. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's... it's the illusion of being deep by having like one of the brothers be like a draft dodger and the other one, like returning to the jungle so he can be with his brother. Like it's giving the illusion of saying something deep when it's not doing that at all. Like it's, it's puddle deep, if anything. And I think that if you just would have had the brothers have any time together, some of this could have been interesting. Yeah. But instead, we get, you know, we're, we're trying to develop these romantic relationships that are truly meaningless. Right. Like, what I said when we were talking about the remake, I kind of like the fact that I believe that, you know, our main couple, I believe they fuck. I mm-hmm. believe, like, they have some chemistry there. Um I don't think that these people even know each other. I think that it's bizarre to me. They have no chemistry because no relationships are developed. And yeah, I think if you would have just, I, the brothers do kind of have, um, that scene where, uh, Hoyt is kind of torturing them right when they get back to the house. That's a really intense scene. And the back and forth with, you know, um, Dean trying to save Eric and just, 
there is something with their dynamic. I just wanted it so much more developed. Mm-hmm. I think about in the remake, the one of the best shots of the movie is when Leatherface like turns around and he's wearing Eric Balfour's Balfour's face. And Jessica Beale's character has to see that and it's truly horrifying because to your point, you feel like by this by this time the characters have been like developed enough where you like understand the relationship and you feel something there like oh shit where here you have like the scene in the basement and it's very i think it also helps it's a very short scene like a very short brief moment it hits you like a punch in the gut and then it moves on from there where here you have the scene in the basement and they try they really try where like chrissy has to try to free Eric and she can't do it and she hides under the table and she has to like hear like what's going on with him and then see the blood come down but when I watch that scene I don't feel like oh wow like to how sad like two young lovers like never to be together again I'm like man that's a fucking cool gory scene you know what I mean like I'm more focused on like what the fuck did they do to his arm do you know what I mean like there's nothing there left not like anything with either character whatsoever. Um, I will say what, where the prequel improves on the remake is it does do a lot more to develop the family. I thought that that was one of the shortcomings of the remake is I didn't get the same, like this didn't feel like a family to me. It felt like a collection of, like I think I had described them as like circus oddities. And there's still, you know, some of that here. And we're going to talk about a couple things in particular in a few minutes. But I do feel like I got a much better sense of, like, them as a more cohesive family unit that actually do love one another and do war and do look out for one another. And that, to me, makes them much, much scarier at that point because they're kind of all working as, like, a nuclear family. Uh, but are just completely messed up. Uh, I completely agree. I, it's not a lot in terms of, especially the dynamic of the family from the original. I don't think anything will really top kind of that interesting interplay. But, um, I yeah, I, I like that you're actually spending a little bit of time with these characters and having them have conversations and um, it does, I think, echo some of what we've come to appreciate about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise. And again, that's kind of why I wanted the brothers because that's exactly like, that's the vibe from the original. You have siblings against the family Mm-hmm. Give me these siblings against yeah. the family. And these are siblings with something kind of to prove as well. Mm-hmm. And I like that. And so, um, but yeah, I I like that we learn a little bit more about Luda May and Monty. I think it's, a, I, I think they, they add some really interesting, I think, texture to them. And I think that it's important that they reintroduce the family as cannibals. 
It seems like a little thing, but I think that's kind of critical to the family in that you have, like you just said before, like a lot of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies at their core are about like the differences in class and what extreme poverty will make you do. So what you have here is a family that none of them work. The only industry within any sort of like conceivable workable radius is shriveled up and died. So what you have is a family that has become cannibal out of, out of necessity. And I think that's a really fascinating thing. And I think it's like inherent to the core of like what makes these movies work. Yeah, I would agree. I think adding in the kind of cannibal plot again, I think is interesting. And I think they also thread it really well with, you know, creating a town that is completely gone away Mm -hmm. that you really are showing kind of the dire straits that the family is in. And I appreciate that. I do think that that's handled. I'm not going to say, you know, like masterfully, but I think it's handled really well. Mm hmm. Agree. Yep. I would agree with that. I don't think anything will ever top like the slow dawning horror that like, oh, my in the, of the first movie where you're like, holy shit, those are torsos in the barbecue shack. You know, when you realize like what the meat is, is what they're eating like that's when nothing will ever top that. But I think they do a pretty good job here. Um, shifting gears like to me. This is the height of like the torture porn era, like that 06, 07. Like, this is when the phrase really, or, or when the movies like really kind of hit that peak. Um, and I was thinking about this like, there had always been extreme horror. Like, when you go back to the late 60s, the 70s, the 80s, like, there had been like extreme horror for decades. You just kind of had to know where to look for it. It wasn't necessarily in playing across like a thousand theaters opening night on a Friday night. It wasn't necessarily a dozen copies of a video cassette at your local mom and pop video store. Um, But by the turn of the century, extreme horror is no longer confined to drive-in theaters or 42nd street style grindhouse theaters. Like these are the movies that are getting put right at the forefront Uh, this is like, it's the mood of the country. It's a very grim period in our country, almost as grim as what we have right now, but we are being confronted with images of Abu Ghraib. We are seeing firsthand the horrors going on in Afghanistan and Iraq. We as a country had to kind of wrestle for the first time, like, you know, being attacked in our own soil in a surprise attack and seeing how between between 9-11 and not just that but even a few years prior but with timothy mcveigh and the oklahoma city bombing seeing a different kind of warfare on our own soil and realizing that like being separated by distance from so many of our perceived threats wasn't going to be a comfort anymore that we could be attacked at any time and wrestling with all of this where you're seeing this much more extreme form of horror being depicted on screen. And I kind of have a quote here 
It's right by David Edelstein from New York Magazine. Uh, and I think this might have been the first time the phrase torture porn had been used. Um, it's a quote from his article, Torture Porn, the Sadistic Movie Trend. And it talks about the the mood of moviegoers at this time. So I'll just read briefly from it. Um, Fear supplants empathy and makes us all potential torturers, doesn't it? Post 9-11, we're engaged in a national debate about the morality of torture, fueled by horrifying pictures of manifestly decent men and women, some of them anyway, enacting brutal scenarios of domination at Abu Ghraib. And a segment of the population evidently has no problem with this. Our righteousness is buoyed by propaganda, like the TV series 24, which devoted an entire season to justifying torture in the name of an imminent threat, a nuclear missile en route to a major city. Who do you want defending America? Kiefer Sutherland or terrorists employed civil liberty lawyers? Back in the realm of non-righteous torture, the question hangs, where do you look where these defilements drag on? I just think that's it's interesting because like in many ways, like as a country, like we are justifying, well, you know, the what to what end are we doing this? And if the ends are worth it, then by any means necessary, we should use whatever tools are at our disposal. And while we're saying that, we also realize that says something really horrible about us as a, a country and as a people at this time. Not that we hadn't always been like that, but I think for the first time, we're maybe saying that out loud. For sure. And I think that that, I think that quote and that idea fits so neatly into this film because you do have Hoyt talking about his experience in more and how that's made him who he is. And you have these two boys that are going off to war. One for a second time. And is obviously dealing with the ramifications of that. And I think it's talking about kind of the cyclical elements of, of violence and um, of war. And so, yeah, I... I think this just speaks again to what we're seeing, I think, in general in horror with this, I think, escalated kind of violence and violence that makes us question how far we would go to save ourselves, to save others, because that's kind of what's percolating in our brains, right? What, how far would we go to, to save ourselves? Would we kill would we justify, um, you know, taking other people out, even if they're not our target, because we want to survive? And so I find it very interesting that so many films in this genre, and I think obviously Saw being a big one, is the one that's really struggling with kind of those notions. Yeah, agreed. I agree with all of that. Um this is definitely, until you get to the 2022 movie, like, this is the goriest one in the franchise. Like, the second movie had a lot of gore in it, but it was so silly. I mean, like, you kick in a wall and all these intestines fall out. Like, that's goofy. Um, 
you have like Chop Top scratching the metal plate on his head. You're like, all right, that's just silly. The first movie is not super gory. The third movie had been cut to shreds. Fourth movie could have been PG-13. Um, this one, it's like they go all out in the gore. Like they, the cow that's hit, it's like a fiberglass built cow filled with like blood and intestines to make it as grotesque as fucking possible um you get like really gruesome deaths like we're gonna peel all the skin off someone's arm when they are pinned down you have like a biker getting eviscerated after a chainsaw had started while he's lying on it like they go all out like it is a really dour bleak gory movie like almost like too much so yeah and you see the family enacting violence against each, each other. Um, so, yeah. I, when I watched it um, again, I, this obviously isn't, you know, a constant rotation film for me, um, but I had forgotten just how kind of gushy this film is. And, yeah, I... There were a couple of moments where I was like, ooh, ooh, ah, ah. If someone came to, like, my other show, Psychoanalysis, and said, "We will, I want to do this as a comfort horror movie, I'd be like, nope. I'm like, I'm going to kind of put my foot down here and say, like, this is, I'm not talking about this as a comfort horror movie. What is wrong with you, sir or madam? Um, please. Um, in it, it. to me, like, it's really dour. And it kind of, the ending is bleak by necessity. Like, if if Jordana Brewster gets away at the end of the movie, you don't really have a sequel, you know? Um, because at that point, the whole law is coming down. Um, but it's the, but it's the way. It's yeah. the way, like, she thinks that she's... Home free. Yeah, that she's, she's on her way. And she sees the cop mm-hmm. ahead of her, and she's like, "I did it! I did it!" And yeah, yeah. they—it's really just a a real downer. But I—I yeah. I think you're exactly right. I mean, you kind of have to do it, and I think it also because one thing that I was trying to think about in watching it this time was really how it fits into the remake and mm-hmm. kind of common threads, not just in the characters and some of the story beats, but in tone as well. Because I think even tone had changed so much in just that short time of of what you were seeing. But yeah, I mean the you know, the opening of the remake with the Hitchhiker is really just sad. Yeah. It's just sad. And I I like that you kind of end on that sad note mm-hmm. here um, because it really does kind of create in your mind a sense of cohesion between the films. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking like, what if, and again, this isn't a critic. This isn't a criticism of the movie. This is just armchair quarterbacking. But what if the hitchhiker from the remake was the final girl in this movie. And like that move, this movie ends where the 
remake begins basically and leads right into it right well someone i can't remember if what because i read a couple of reviews um in prep because i kind of wanted this is not a film that i that a lot of people have like these Talk really about. yeah so i was like i wonder what other people actually just think and someone had written or had talked about how they thought that Bailey was going to end up being Henrietta from mm-hmm. the remake. The girl mm. that's in the trailer with the baby. And that could have been real wild. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 in a, in a way, I'm glad that they didn't do any of that i just mm-hmm. like kind of this tonal you know we're in <laughs> a real bad way in mm-hmm. this area with these characters and that's where you know that's where we go with the remake yeah so the only the last thing i have is for a movie with so little humor for a movie that is so dour the only humor they use in this movie and i'm glad you're on to talk about this as the person who's the advocate for persons with disabilities the only comic relief comes to the expense of people with disabilities in this movie uh you have uncle monty's double amputation scene which is very much played for like gallows humor like when arlie ermy when hoyt's like even him out and his look is like what like, that is, like, one of the few laugh lines in the whole movie. Um, and then you have, like, Leatherface's birth scene is kind of played for humor. Where, like, oh, the joke is, like, this woman is so large, she don't even know she's pregnant. Um, like, that is, like, the humor of it. And the tea lady also being so physically large that, like... She gets pushed up against the door in order to block Hoyt from coming in. And she has this like shocked look on her face that is played for a laugh. Like it's weird to me that in a movie that is so grim, so dour and so mean, like that is the thing about this movie. It is, it's a fucking mean movie. And so much of the horror from this time is so mean spirited. And there's going to be some less. I can already feel like the one star review, like, Oh, uh, horrors always mean you don't like like no go back and watch like a friday the 13th or a nightmare on elm street any of the sequels like they're fun movies you know and there's a place for meanness and horror but like this takes it to a whole new level yeah i would definitely agree with uh monty and the tea lady in particular um the tea lady moment where um, Eric uh, and Chrissy are pushing her up against the wall because I think they both do that mm-hmm. in that in that moment is really jarring because it comes out of nowhere and it's just like what what are we even what are we even doing with this mm-hmm. like this is this is different um, the birth scene at the very beginning is odd for me 
because to me it just kind of reads as you have this woman and we don't know anything about her um maybe she knows she's pregnant but she doesn't want to say anything because she's not going to be able to work um that that honestly was kind of my initial read but mm-hmm. i'm also coming from a you know my kind of time period and experiences and what other you know other stories so um i never really got that maybe she didn't know she was pregnant but that could definitely be a read um but the fact that you have such a different birth with it you know her water breaks and then it turns in to blood and Leatherface Tommy is born and he He kind of just crawls out. Yeah. It's very, um, have you seen the unborn? The, I think nineties. I have not. Oh, it is one of the most ridiculous films I have ever seen in my entire life. And I love it so much. Um, you have like ridiculous fetus, like, Fancy all over. It's wonderful. And I get a little flavor of that. But mm-hmm. it's also just reads to me as, oh, of course. Disabled baby kills the mom. Disabled baby is a monster and needs to be raised by monsters. And this thrown one, in the garbage. Yeah. So I, I'm just like, Ugh. all right. Well, I'm glad that we're really starting off with that. That's great but i think at the same time it's yeah i i totally get what you're saying with it being played as kind of humorous i i didn't get the humor in the opening but i can totally see that now and it's really upsetting but yeah the stuff with monty and the tea lady i was just like what 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 is this? No. Oh, you need to even it up because it's going to get infected. That's not how it works. No, that's not <laughs> how infections work. No. It, oh, you don't get infected because one leg is shorter than the other. You get it because a open wound, like your leg is missing and there is an open wound there. And to Leatherface's credit in the sec in the remake, by the time the remake rolls around, he gets it right when he hangs up the dude on the hook. He treats the wound, he staunches the blood, and he kind of puts the salt on it. So he learns from his mistakes, I guess, with Uncle Monty. Um, but little, little too late for Uncle Monty. All right. Do you have anything else on this movie? Because I think, I think I've got everything. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. Um, I think it does, you know, it's weird to have a prequel kind of nestled in to the franchise as this one is. So I think, unfortunately, I do think that probably flavors a lot of people's opinions of it because it has to serve a very specific purpose. And um, <coughs> I don't hate it. But I just, I just feel like there were some great thoughts, perhaps some, some decent intentions that just got, you know, 
barely um, even considered when it came time to what we see on screen. Yeah. And it's the first of two prequels that this franchise is going to have. You the the two of the three next three movies we talk about are going to be prequels to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is fascinating to me. And we're going to be talking about that. We we have in this series out of how many do we have all together? We have four, six, nine movies. In a series of nine movies, we have two movies called Leatherface and three movies called Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is like not really, you know, getting creative with the naming rights. And there's no Jason goes, there's no Leatherface goes to hell. There's no Dream Child, you know, there's no, um, you know, no curse of. It's just straight up. We're going to, you know what, the title worked before. We're just going to name it the same thing again. Why fix what ain't broken? Why can't Leatherface right. go to Manhattan? Like, why isn't you know, he going on vacay? Send Leatherface to Fantastic Fest. <gasps> like, Leatherface goes to South by Southwest. You know, you're telling me you wouldn't watch that movie? See, that would be, okay. See, what you're doing right now is you're writing the sequel I'm giving out billion dollar ideas. You just wrote the sequel idea for yeah, the most recent is, one. This will make more than Top Gun Maverick. All right. It just take these ideas. Just give me some residuals. All right. Uh, Leatherface tearing it up at Emo's on 6th Street in Austin. Come on. Come on. Make it happen. You know you want it. You know you need it. Nicole, speaking of needing things, where what's going on with Bodies of Horror right now? Where can we find you and where can we hear you in our ear holes right now? So Bodies of Horror is going strong in the second season, just over now 30 episodes. So that's really exciting. Um, have been doing some interesting episodes on uh, John Kramer and aka jigsaw prime because i do love me the saw franchise and uh just recorded an episode on upgrade so keeping it very much in the uh lee winnell family because mm -hmm. we all know that adam is the star of the original saw like that's right so um yeah going strong there you can find me um on the anatomy of a scream uh pod mm -hmm. feed so wherever you listen to podcasts just search for anatomy of a scream and i'll be there excellent and listeners you know me you know my other show psychoanalysis a horror therapy podcast where we are doing like horror through the lens of mental health in september we are covering uh, movies that depict like religious fundamentalism and uh, falling prey to say cults. So we have three topic episodes this month on Saint Maud, The Wicker Man, uh, and one other movie, uh, Noriko's Secret Diner, I believe. And I apologize if I'm getting the name of the movie wrong, but it's late. Um, for this show, we have a lot of stuff coming up right now. So the first thing I'm going to ask you to do Give us a follow over on the old Twitter. Give us a follow at pod and penned. Um, I have a pinned tweet that's going to be up there asking 
what are movies that take place on Halloween that aren't necessarily movies about Halloween? So, for example, House of a Thousand Corpses takes place on Halloween night. E.T. is, uh, as Brian uh, Kuyper mentioned to me, is like a sneaky Halloween movie in some way. So that's going to be the pin tweet. And there's a reason behind that. Every Halloween, I do a bonus episode with my daughter, and I'm looking for something to do as a bonus show for this spooky season. But for our regular episodes, we have three more forays into Texas. And my goal is to knock the rest of this series out by the end of September. And we have three really, I think, unique and fun movies to talk about. Because I think like there's no middle ground on any of these movies. Um, so we have Texas Chainsaw 3D, we have Leatherface, and we have Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the 2022 version. And then we put this behind us, and I'm looking forward to all three of those. In October, we are going to return to Haddonfield. We are going to be talking about Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends. We'll be doing deep dives that you've known and love, what you listen to us for. We're going to be going deep into both of those movies. And I think I want to somehow, some way, revisit 2018's halloween as well as a precursor to that and i'm trying to think of some ways we can do that that aren't just a rehash of what's been done but lots of cool stuff coming up uh during the spooky season and we're going to try to come up with some other bonus content for your all for all of your halloween and spooky season needs in the meantime please rate review and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts Leave us a review. We're at like 96. We've been sitting at 96 for a couple weeks. I would love by the time we sit down to record our next show, if we are over, if we're hitting triple digits. Um, now, only leave us a review if you're going to leave us five stars and say some kind words. If you're like, oh, cool, I'll leave a one-star review and be like, this show sucks ass. Like, look, that doesn't help us. That That's not not what we're looking for here folks uh leave us a five-star review a few kind words if you love what we do um if you don't love what we do you have just spent 90 plus minutes listening to us talk about texas chainsaw the massacre of the beginning so i will ask you good sir or madam what are you doing with your life at that point all right i've got nothing else now that i've insulted our listeners on that happy note We'll be back very soon. We're going to do our thing, cuz, and talk Texas Chainsaw 3D. And we are out.